iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Yo, technology, what is it all about? The mind boggling thing is if you enter that paradigm and you use pluripotent stem cells as a starting point, then because they are so proliferative, because they have this infinite potential of expansion, in theory, all it requires is one single cell to literally feed the world. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, your West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. Thank you very, so very much for tuning in. I hope you all are fabulous. We have a fun one for you, but you got to strap on your big brain hat because we are diving into the mind-boggling world of synthetic biology. What is synthetic biology, you ask? I can hear you saying it now. Basically, it's the idea that we can engineer cells the same way we engineer a computer or a smartphone to do the things we want them to do. Um, That is obviously a wild simplification. But this idea, this technology, has very, very, very big implications for, you know, the planet, the human race, and of course, our friend, the cow. Now here to explain what I'm going on about is Dr. Mark Cotter. He is a neurosurgeon. He leads a lab, a research lab at the University of Cambridge's Stem Cell Institute. And he is the co-founder of not one, but two companies in this world. And the first is called Meetable, as in meat-able, as in stuff you eat. And they are a lab-grown meat startup. They're developing, I think, initially uh, pork, lab-grown pork. So, you know, pork without the pig. And then the other company that he's also co-founded is called BitBio. And this is a cell coding company. Think of them as kind of a platform type of company. And what they're trying to do is basically decode the operating system of our bodies by identifying every cell and then figuring out ways to reproduce all of them in a lab, which has huge implications for new drugs, treatments for all types of maladies. It's just, it's a very, very big deal. It's a bit of a moonshot that kind of, you know, the the ultimate goal, but they were already producing some types of cells, already selling these uh, to researchers, to pharmaceutical companies. And of course, what both of these companies have in common, Meetable and Bitbio, is this idea of engineering biology. 
by you know combining machine learning with advances in stem cell production and understanding to get to some really just kind of stunning things that you wouldn't think possible that would feel like science fiction like you know effectively setting up meat factories that aren't churning out you know plant-based pea protein burger patties but actual burger without the cows for example anyhow so we talk about all of that it's a fascinating world um we'll probably be doing more on this kind of melding of ai and biology because i think it's it's really interesting and it's kind of having a moment and gaining steam and it has huge implications for all of us so uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation, and I'm going to get out of the way now and hand you over to Dr. Mark Cotter, co-founder of BitBio and Meetable, and a neurosurgeon and researcher at the University of Cambridge, Cambridge's Stem Cell Institute. Enjoy. I was reading through kind of the research you were doing the and kind of what's led you to this point. And there's kind of two bits. Obviously, there's Bit Bio, and there's Meetable, but obviously the unifying kind of technology is this idea of synthetic biology. But I don't think if I say if I say that to my neighbor, they'll be like, I don't know what you're talking about. What what does that mean? So can you just explain what that is? Kind of, and I saw a reference to you know you've started both of these companies. Or help start both companies. But I think in one um, story, you talked about it kind of going back to some research you started doing years ago, and then it turned into this thing. So if you could just give us a sense of like, kind of what the technology is, how you came onto it, and then we could get into all the, the juicy stuff of what you're doing now. <laughs> Great. Synthetic biology is really taking an engineering approach uh, to biology, uh, and moving away from a paradigm where we sort of treat cells as organisms that we nurture and culture to into a paradigm where we start engineering them using genetic edits and really sort of prescribing a function or identity to the cells. And synthetic biology, obviously, if you think broadly about it, spends back millennia when you started to sort of harvest and, and grow crops uh, according to your own sort of specification, trying to, you know, Think about all this, all the fruit that we have. They're all, all, obviously all bred and human sort of induced. All the way into sort of more modern times when um, we started to engineer bugs, essentially. And that has opened up new avenues in, in medicine. So think about the transition of, from small molecules into biologics. Um, so we have insulin, for example. This is a biological peptide really needed by people that have diabetes, for example, and you need a biological system to produce this. And where we are at at the moment is this transition from being able to engineer bugs and uh, like E. coli um, at a virtual, we can try and apply the tools of synthetic biology to mammalian systems, so to cells that you and I share, but also other sort of higher species share. And, and that's going to open up, you know, tremendous new opportunities, thinking about medicine, like cell therapies, maybe even sort of creating organs in the future. And uh, on the food side, it opens up alternatives, for example, to generate meat, leather, and other sort of uh, non-clinical products. So was there a breakthrough that allows, allows us to take 
and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in the in the food example, you take a newborn pig, you get some blood from its umbilical cord, and from that you can, um, w- which I believe are stem cells, and from that you can actually start manipulating those cells to actually do different things like growing meat in a lab, or in other, in other words, growing pork without the pig. Why are we able to do that now? And how recent, how big a deal is that? Like, what's the breakthrough that has happened here? I think here are really a couple of things that had to come together in order to open up that, uh, that opportunity. Like, like everything else, you know, science always stands on the shoulder of, of giants that came before. One important concept is, of course, the knowledge about stem cells. And why is that important? Because that is a source of cells that that remains eternally young. It, you can rapidly increase uh, bulk, so they, these cells proliferate, and so they can be the starting point uh, of of an industrial production of cells. The tricky thing with these stem cells was that they're extremely difficult um, to manipulate. So I, my personal experience with this was I was an early sort of stage researcher who just started my own lab at the University of Cambridge. And I tried to sort of coax these stem cells into a particular cell type that's called oligodendrocytes. So these are cells that mm-hmm. wrap around axons in the brain. Uh, and it turned out that there's huge differences between the human oligodendrocyte and an oligodendrocyte that I take from a rodent model, for example. And, and of course, being a clinician, I'm trained as a neurosurgeon, um, I wanted to my research to be relevant for the clinic. And so I had to find a way to create human cells and, and not rely on, for example, biopsy samples. And so this is where I really felt how difficult it is to actually get a stem cell into a cell type of, of interest. And when, when was this, roughly? So this was around 2009. And, and just before I started, something had happened that really changed, I think, uh, the scientific world. Shinya Yamanaka um, came up with a synthetic biology way of actually creating stem cells that is now used to, you know, as you said, you know, take a blood draw from, from an individual and now even from, from sort of a species, other species, and convert those cells, uh, reprogram those cells back to a stem cell. Mm. So, so that opened the world, um, but also opened a new way of thinking about cell identity. So what makes a cell a cell? But it took a while until we realized that that may also solve the next bottleneck um, in the application of stem cells, which is getting them to actually do what you want them to do. And so extending that concept of cell reprogramming, which is really a method by which you switch on a new cell identity using a genetic code, Marius Wernig was able to demonstrate you can program a skin cell into a brain cell. Uh, And then he also even showed that you can turn a a liver cell into a brain cell. And that made the science world realize that there has to be something different. You know, our concept of cell identity, which is based on development biology, has to change. And right in the middle of that, I started my lab, uh, and we tried to create um, this very hard oligodendrocyte. So it used to take 170 days to get from a stem cell into an oligodendrocyte. Wow. And, and of course, that takes, I mean, working six months to potentially then be able to do an experiment 
um, wasn't very attractive um, for my group. <laughs> <laughs> and so we tried uh, sort of, we entered into the unknown and tried to reprogram stem cells into oligodendrocytes. And what we found is that um, it's possible in theory, but but there's huge bottlenecks. We only got very few cells in the culture that actually turned into this oligodendrocyte. And, uh, but we figured out that there's something going on that um, prevents the, the, this, this transition. And we figured out this is a mechanism called gene silencing. So the cells recognize that there's a wrong program. Someone tries to uh, switch on uh, a different program and they shut it out. They shut it down. And so we sort of really tried to use this sort of more engineering approach and iterated and iterated uh, until we sort of suddenly were able to open and unlock um, this bottleneck. And what happened was suddenly we were able to instruct cells to become a neuron. So we started with a neuron and all the cells in the culture turned into a neuron. Now, I couldn't believe my eyes when my students uh, showed me the first results because that's something that was really counter to what everyone mm. knew in the stem cell field. You know, you'd never get, you know, a pure culture of cells. So, so we tried and went back, and and, and then then we thought it's a glitch um, that uh, somehow. So we... sorry, sorry. Just a question: How do you? What is the mechanism for manipulating these cells? So, so in order to get to this sort of precision, what you need to do, you need to embed the code, the transcription factor code that you want to activate that that actually defines a new cell into the genome. So we edit the cells in particular sites of uh, the DNA, which are called safe harbor sites. And they somehow protect the cell, but they also protect the program. And when we then activate the program, we turn the cell essentially into a computer that actually follows your command. And that's really the trick that we've developed. So, but this isn't like a control C, control V, I'm editing a, a Word document. What, how do you create this program? Is it, because I imagine this is all just like a little microscopic soup of stuff, but what, how do you kind of create that program? So obviously we're, we're manipulating with genes. And so we have to use yeah. tools like CRISPR that allow us to sort of engineer the cells the way that we want to engineer. And um, how do you create the program? So really the question here, maybe how do you identify the program that you want to switch on? So if you think of a cell as, as the hardware uh, and then the nucleus, the DNA is like the read-only memory, so the memory that yep. contains every genetic program, then the state in which a cell is is dictated by the active part of the program, and that's controlled by transcription factors. So th these are like the code words in a programming language. And so in order to understand how we move one cell to another cell type, we need to understand the programs and these and these code words. And in order to figure that out, my company Bitbio has generated um, what we call the discovery platform. Was really you know different um, workflows and different groups working together, which use high throughput screening methods in combination with advanced data science to rapidly read out these code words and then translate them into new cell types. So that sounds really easy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but just to step back, but, and then we can get into the companies themselves and what they do. 
This feels like quite a big deal, to put it scientifically. How big a deal is this? So I think the promise of stem cells has, has been sort of upon us now for maybe 20 years, maybe 30 years. And if we think about it, at the moment, there's not a single clinical product. There's no stem cell treatment in the clinic. And it boils down to not being able to control these stem cells in the way that you want to control them for an industrial or medical product. So what we believe is that this confluence of advances from you know, Yamanaka cell reprogramming approach to you know, OptioX, which is, our, which is our core technology that we can use to overcome these gene silencing phenomena and make this manufacturing very robust. I think it is quite significant. Um, obviously, we'll have to see how significant it is when, when we sort of actually enter into the clinical setting. But, but all the data that we have right now points into something quite important. So let's talk about the meat example. How did you get involved with the companies called Meatable, but meat as in meat, as, as opposed to M-E-E-T? Um, what is that company? What are they doing? How did you get involved? So Meetable really started after a conversation, a telephone conversation with my co-founder, Dan Luining. So I was a young PI, principal investigator at the University of Cambridge. We just discovered this OptioX technology. And uh, one of the first cell types that we created was muscle cells. So we're the, we were the first lab that could create muscle cells um, very robustly and at scale. And uh, we documented this in a little video. So Dan at that point was involved in a small funding body supporting the cultured meat field. So we got, we got introduced. I showed him our technology. I didn't know much about cultured meat at that point at all. But within you know, a five-minute conversation on the phone, you know, Dan convinced me how revolutionary this could be. It deals with the antibiotic crisis. You know, it deals with animal welfare issues. And it goes as far as even being able to address, you know, the high intensity farming that potentially sets us up for more viruses such as the COVID that we're currently experiencing. So I got sold very, very quickly. And then it took a while uh, until we sort of got our ideas straight. We assembled a team and uh, and BitBio and, uh, and Meetable got started more or less at the same time. And Meetable really uses the same technology to to create uh, real meat, focusing on muscle cells and uh, fat cells. And here, the paradigm is very similar. So far, access to a reliable source of cells, um, obviously sort of animal cells such as pork and and, and, um, beef cells, has been the bottleneck. And by using and introducing the synthetic biology paradigm, we were able to, to crack that. And... The promise of, of this is that we can actually really produce meat at scale based on that infinite potential of expansion of pluripotent stem cells and the control system, which we call OptoX, um, that we've introduced in, in, in those cells, which then allow us to actually create the meat. Just so I understand, so um, in the pork example, you get the blood from a umbilical cord that kind of source material, as it were, 
you can then replicate that and kind of that can be kind of the start of an industrial production process. In other words, like, is that repeatable forever? Or do you need, you know, a certain amount of kind of legit umbilical blood, you know, to for for each kind of, I don't know, kilo of meat? Or how does it work? The mind boggling thing uh, is if you enter that paradigm and you use pluripotent stem cells as a starting point, then because they are so proliferative, because they have this infinite potential of expansion, in theory, all it requires is one single cell to literally feed the world. That's mind-boggling. That is, as you say, that is mind-boggling. And of course, you know, the difficulty with this approach is, again, having that control and getting those stem cells into the muscles, into the fat cells that you require. And that's really been the sort of critical aspect that uh, yeah. we were able to solve. So how far has that down the road have you got? Because I talked to John Cumbers, who of course put us put us in touch. And he's, mm -hmm. you know, you're talking about effectively kind of reverse engineering the ribeye, which is a great way to think about it. Um, <laughs> but have you, what has actually been produced thus far I mean, in terms of where is that where are we along that journey because i know that meetable just raised i think 50 million dollars or close to it and i ask because i've talked to a lot of folks in the kind of plant-based meat world beyond meat impossible burger etc and they're all trying to they're they're damnedest to use pea protein and everything else to basically create a facsimile of the real thing but this is obviously the real thing just without the animal but how far away is that from actually being kind of producible where you could, I don't know, see a ribeye from an actual cow and a ribeye from Meatable's lab and you're like, these taste the same. These look the same. So the, the, the answer to that is quite um, a few years until we, we are at the steak stage. And the most practical approach is to obviously look at meat products that don't require the complex structure that you that you may see in, in, in a ribeye. So there's, you know, sausages, there is other products, minced meat that I think would be the natural first step if you wanted, if, if, if you want to launch a, a cultured meat based product, just removing the complexity of the architecture of, of an actual rib steak. But uh, Meetable has capabilities already to produce meaningful amounts of meat, of real meat. Is it poultry they've done thus far or pork or what is it? So um, their focus was pork and that addresses, you know, issues like swine flu. And the, the practical reasons for that was that we just were faster with, with pork than with uh, beef cells. Yeah. But uh, the ambition really is to sort of produce um, all the different species that people uh, like to eat. So just because uh, it does feel like we're entering a phase, and you can correct me if I'm wrong or if this is too kind of overstating the case, that we are potentially on the cusp of a kind of meat 2.0 era. And that perhaps in, I don't know, I mean, who knows about the timelines, let's say 20 years from now or 25 years from now. We'll look back as we're eating all of our cultured meat, look back on the kind of agro-industrial complex as kind of just this crazy time that, like, I can't believe we did that now that we have, you know, meat that can be pumped out of a factory. That's the same thing. I think that's, um, look, if you look at industries, uh, the natural thing is that 
efficiency drives you know the emergence of new technologies and then the integration and that change and that has impact on the supply chain etc etc and if you think about cultured meat the the promise here is to obviously we're solving some major issues climate change antibiotics crisis animal welfare issues but but also if you are able to produce meat centrally uh, so to speak, um, you sort of reduce the complexity of the supply chain. And so I do think that cultured meat will have a tremendous opportunity and, and become a very important part of our food system. However, I'm not 100% sure whether it re- will replace everything. You know, I think there, is, there, will be, there will be maybe space for, you know, very carefully looked after animals, organic types of meat products that perhaps come at a premium given sort of the amount of work that's required. And in an ideal scenario, cultured meat can create a viable alternative. One of the things that you can do is you can create meats that have distinct properties that you perhaps don't get out of natural meat. So just think about the fat contents of you know cer- certain meats. Um, when you start taking an engineering approach uh, to, to cultured meat, then you could potentially swap out some of the you know fatty acids that you don't want that you know, harm your health, and you could start thinking about how you engineer meat to become healthy and 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 perhaps even <laughs> medicinal in in a way. So I think when you start taking an engineering approach to, to food, starting at the basic cellular level, you know, all sorts of things can happen. So is there, and just from a scientific point of view, and in, when we're talking about scale, because these are solving, trying to, aiming at big problems and potentially big solutions, is there any scientific reason you see today that would keep this from happening? I think it's pretty much de-risk when you think about the core technology and we are now entering more an engineering phase so it's about process development now the good thing is we've been very good at developing large-scale reactor systems for example in the sort of biology space we talked about insulin production there's more and more synthetic biology startups using you know, microorganisms and engineering them, for example, to produce spider silk, as an example, you know, um, built sort of natural resource building blocks. And so what we need to do now is we need to adopt those systems so that they can also support the growth of more complex eucharids. So stem cells from animals and, and, and perhaps even human beings going forward when you think about um, medical applications of your cells. So I'm quite positive, to be honest, that, uh, that that is a solvable problem. One of the biggest bottlenecks will be price in the cultured meat space. I'm convinced that there is a, uh, is a way forward based on the different developments that, that we've seen. But I think that is the biggest bottleneck in the coming years to, to, to turn this into a product that people want to buy. Right, right. And you guys are obviously very early on, but have you had any pushback from the kind of the meat lobby, as it were? Because obviously, I'm sure you've seen in America, the Cattlemen's Association of America, I uh, can't remember the exact title. They're pushing back on the plant-based meat guys and saying, you can't put your stuff in the meat aisle. You can't actually call this meat. And there's just like the whole branding issue. And then obviously, the kind of, 
I feel like for what you guys are talking about, it's going to be more a question of just getting people comfortable with the idea of something that's grown in a lab as opposed to something they can, you know, that they know that's a chicken, it's a cow, it's a pig, whatever, um, that there's a public acceptance um, issue there. I don't know if you guys have been hit with any of that or been thinking about any of that. So what we see is that there's certainly a change of minds going on, especially if you look at the sort of younger generation who have a much more sort of accepting view of um, genetic engineering or engineering of food. In fact, lots of people that I know have taken vegetarian lifestyles or vegan lifestyles because um, they fundamentally disagree with the way that we produce meat. And, and many of them actually would be very accepting using, you know, lab cultured meat. But, um, you know, this is a topic that I'm sort of feel you know, is probably more in the, in the realm of, of meatable and, of course, very happy also to make an intro, an intro there. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. So is it fair to say that like BitBio is effectively kind of the platform upon which Meetable is building or the kind of the, the core technology? So, yeah, so BitBio really uh, is the core technology, OptioX, that's how we call it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it's sort of, it's a control system for mammalian cells. And it's the tool that for us has unlocked the use of these more complex cells, if you compare them to the sort of microbes that have been engineered in the past. Got you. And actually turn that into, and, and use now mammalian cells in BitBio's uh, example, human cells to actually precision engineer the function and the identity of the cell that you require for a medical product. For BitBio, for OptioX, what is the kind of, for speaking in Silicon Valley terms, the killer app? Like, what are you going for first to, sh- to show the, you know, in terms of a kind of productizing this in some way? So the technology, you know, allows you to produce Cells. So, so the next question is, what do you do with the cell? So, what's the sort of, what's the most exciting use of a cell? And um, I think that the most exciting use of a cell would be obviously the application in a clinical context. So, producing a cell therapy. And why is this so incredible? Because, first of all, we have a little bit of experience now with cell therapies in the form of CAR Ts. They're still astronomically expensive, you know. But um, sorry, so could you explain to what is cell, cell therapy? So cell therapy is really the concept of using a cell as a medicine. So when we think about medicines, think about uh, take a pill. Take a pill. There's a small molecule in the pill, and then yeah. the next step, a bit more complex, would be we discussed, you know, the application of insulin. So a peptide that sort of forms a medicine. And what recently happened over the last uh, 10 years was that people discovered you can actually use cells themselves as medicines by putting some edits. So editing the cell, engineering the cell yeah. to recognize cancer. And um, when these cells recognize cancer, they're using so-called T cells, so immune cells. They start to attack it and they actually 
they are able to dissolve it. So for the first time, we have a medicine that's highly specific and that is able to eradicate a certain kind of cancer. Yeah. Now, the starting point were T cells, because that's a cell that sort of we have in our bodies in the blood. It's easy to take out and it's relatively easy to engineer. But um, the whole process is tremendously expensive. And so it's not a solution that we can use like, like we now use other drugs. And so the, the holy grail for, for cell therapy, and now I'm talking about a broader application for, uh, of cell therapy, because if you think about it, every, every disease is, is a manifestation of something that went wrong at the cell level. So in a way, every sort of disease should be able to be treated with an appropriate cell. So if you've got a, a genetic condition, for example, if you could engineer cells that don't have that genetic uh, mutation and you can bring them into the organ system, um, then you can correct the organ. Or if you have uh, an injury and you, you lose cells, maybe you can then use new cells to replace what, what you've lost. And then the cancer field is what we need to do is we, we need to be able to create cells that at scale that, that again recognize cancer targets that don't cost you know half a million and so the potential of cells being seen as, as actual drugs is incredible so a few years ago i think it was a few years ago maybe four or five years ago mark zuckerberg he came out he set up the chan zuckerberg institute and he came out with this very bombastic statement and said you know our goal is to cure all disease and everybody was like, that is so ridiculous in Silicon Valley. Uh, and there's no, you don't have a hope in hell of doing that. That's a ridiculous statement. But listening to you just talk, I mean, I'm not saying you're going to, we're going to cure all disease with cell therapy, but it feels like there's an approximation there that it's not actually that far off. Is that fair? No, I, I mean, actually, I do believe uh, uh, what he said to a certain extent. I think really that if, Disease starts at the cellular level. If you can introduce cells, if you can create cells that are not affected by the disease, then you, you'll be able to cure it. Now, what Mark Zuckerberg has done, he, um, he's put a lot of support into what's called the Human Cell Atlas. And, and that's a sort of a charting expedition. So right now, we don't know all the cells that we have in the human body. So the appropriate starting point is to look at what what's in the body to create the atlas to create the atlas and uh, and so so i think that's a tremendously valuable and really important uh, thing what we've done is we've taken the opposite approach and um, we said well we know that cells are governed by genetic programs that are stored in the dna in the nucleus and can we create a system that allows us to read out those programs. And by sort of discovering those programs, can we discover cell types that are encoded in the DNA? So we often tap into the human cell atlas when we want to understand the cell types that we actually have created. So it's like a reference map. And um, the difference is that our approach will be able to hand researchers or hopefully doctors in the future, those cells as a product versus the cell atlas really gives us the atlas, 
that allows us to understand what we're producing. So I, one, I had no idea that this atlas was even being created, which sounds like quite a big deal. How close is that to being done? Is it done? And is it, I presume, kind of open source? You can kind of just access it. I don't know what form it takes, but I imagine it's not like it's sitting on your desk like a globe would be and you just kind of spin it around. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in in a way, yes, because uh, the human atlas obviously is uh, open access and it's it's really a, a joint initiative where many academic institutions across the globe have come together to to create this atlas. So a bit like the Human Genome Project. And you've got, you know, you've got an incredibly strong group in in San Francisco. And in Cambridge, where I am based, there's the Sanger Center that is also heavily contributing um, to the Human Cell Atlas. So it's really a a reference set that um, you can access. So that there's tons of data that's stored in the cloud. And that gives you a very precise sort of coordinate system, so to speak. Actually, it hasn't been integrated yet, but um, data points that you can use to benchmark cells. Right. And so where is it? Is it is it almost done, if that's the right way to ask that question? Mm, I don't think it's done yet, no. So they're sort of, uh, they're, they're addressing more and more cell types. But one of the things that we're discovering is that there are more and more cell types that, um, than we ever thought. So we were used to be thinking a liver cell. Uh, and then when the human cell atlas looked into the liver in more detail, we found many, many more cells than we expected, different shades of hepatocytes, different shades of other cell types. And that seems to be a recurring pattern. Every time when we had a label for a cell and we call them a certain, a certain cell type, we now find out that there is much more granularity. There's there's a difference between cell type, sub-cell types, and even sort of activation states, etc. Now, the cool thing is, uh, and that's really the premise what BitBio uh, is, is, is built upon, that all these states, all these cell types, sub-cell types, are defined by a program, a program that is encoded by transcription factors. So these are the genes that switch on and switch off programs in a cell. And so BitBio is all about reading out this, these programs and then using our OptioX technology to activate the program that we want. And uh, what this allows us to do is really engineer cells with a sort of unprecedented position in terms of you know what they are, what state they are, the function of a cell at an industrial scale. So you're talking about effectively reading, writing, and editing. So we have to use all three things in order to get there. But reading and writing is really, if you think about the computer analogy, is editing the the memory component of a computer. You read and you write. But that's not the computer. Or that's not the program. The program really is using that information and doing something with it, which is, you could call it the operating system of a cell. And BitBio is really trying to understand that programming language, this operating system. And our OptoX control system is a bit like an enter button that you use when you have the code words, the transcription factor combinations. You can you just jumpstart that new program. Or another analogy, maybe, is like the iPhone. And like, so you have the iPhone and then it's like, you're creating all the apps you need to have a healthy body or to ha- not have disease or whatever. You know, if like, 
if your iPhone gets a bug and it's liver cancer, you can get the anti-liver cancer app and install it. Well, I think that, I mean, that's a fantastic analogy. <laughs> um, I, you know, and, and, and quite frankly, because human cells are so fundamentally important, not only for cell therapies, but also for, for drug discovery, you know, I think it's a very, very fitting analogy. So the sort of one of the reasons why we see so high failure rates when we think about drug drug discovery. Drug discovery, yeah. Yeah. The the famous billion dollars in ten years to get a single drug onto the market. That's right. And of course you don't spend billion dollar on one drug. Um you, ha- you yeah. have to sort of take into account all the failures. But you know, pharma companies are extremely good at developing drugs. So when you look at this uh, at the sort of what they do very robust process, but somehow we find it very hard to go from what works in the preclinical setting to what works in the clinic. And if you, if you take a step back, the biggest difference between this is a change of species. Because at, at the preclinical level, you work with animal cells and cancer cell lines, etc., until you sort of figure out the mechanism that you then take into the clinic and that's where the big failures happen. So there's a mismatch in species. So I think it's general knowledge now that the assumption that um, in order to fix drug discovery, you have to sort of insert the human element into the early stages of drug discovery. Yeah. I take, a, I take an example. A mouse doesn't suffer from Alzheimer. So in order to use a mouse model to create an Alzheimer drug, we have to manipulate the mouse to get something that resembles Alzheimer. And then we use a very sophisticated set of drug discovery mechanisms to to solve that problem. When you translate this into the clinic, we often find out that what we've created in the mouse isn't Alzheimer because it doesn't work in the human context. So, So the way to fix it is really to take a cell that is affected by Alzheimer or any other sort of neurodegenerative condition that you want to, uh, to study and create a drug that works in that cell. And I think um, that has the opportunity to reduce the failure rates. And quite frankly, we don't need a big effect. If we sort of double the chance of success, we already have the costs of a drug, which are astronomical. And I think, you know, taking that approach would be much more sort of much stronger than actually only, you know, doubling the chances. So what? So BitBio is a company. Uh, it's not a research lab. So how, what are you doing? Where are you focusing your energies first? Is it on kind of basically creating, finding these cells and then engineering them to be, okay, this is one of the active cells, say in liver cancer, then helping pharmaceutical companies be like, okay, this is the cell you need to aim at and that be the kind of product or where, where are you focusing as a business to kind of put this in action? So we really see BitBio as uh, the source of, uh, of human cells going forward. Got you. So yes, we're going to integrate and we're going to create clinical products or so cell therapies. And, and that's something that we're preparing in the coming period. So we're actively working on clinical programs. But in the meanwhile, we've opened our technology up to this research and drug discovery world. And what we've seen is a tremendous amount uh, of interest using those cells for drug screening programs. So we have two fully, so, so two products out in the market already. 
we see a lot of pharma companies. We've got a collaboration with a big screening company called Charles River. And what they're doing is they're using these cells for drug discovery purposes. And there's a huge amount of interest in new cell models, new cell, um, new disease models, especially, et cetera. Um, and so that, that, that is an important aspect of what human cells can do. What are these two products? Are they certain types of, I don't know, certain types of cancer cells or, or can you say? So no, these two products are really uh, out there. So one of them is, is a brain cell, a neuron. Um, in fact, it's an excitatory neuron that sort of um, that resembles the cells that we have in our gray matter. And the other product that we've already launched is a muscle cell. Uh, and that's really important for if you think about muscle dystrophies like Duchenne, or you can ask questions of, you know, why do we lose muscle bulk when we age? So sarcopenia would be another reason uh, why people want to, to use those cell models. And the brain cells, presumably those, those are for things like Alzheimer's or other brain conditions. Correct, exactly. And, and so what Bio does, and going back to this discovery process, we produce more and more cell types that we can then launch uh, and make available f- for drug discovery. And that's the interesting thing, you know, a cell really has multiple applications. You said it's an app. They, you know, particular cell types are really very attractive for, for cell therapies or regenerative medicine applications. So how would it work then? So say um, the brain cell product, which is kind of a weird string of words to say, you know, let's say, I don't know, I'm pulling a name out of the hat, Merck uses it and like, oh my goodness, we've figured out a way to target the cell that's really effective at reversing or treating or slowing Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Are you also trying to create those cells yourselves or are you kind of selling this as almost like a cells as a service type kind of subscription or or how's it work? So we're really a product business. Um, So we see our cells are the product and the context in which they use is the application. So when we create a cell therapy, we're going to create this and launch this into the clinic. Some of them will be you know, launch the clinic with with established partners. Others we're going to take into the clinic directly. And when you say into the clinic, you mean testing as a, you know, the clinical first stage, second, third testing as a potential treatment for a disease. And all the way into then the actual production and delivering the cells into the clinic. So I think uh, it's important that, you know, the value that uh, that accumulates uh, across all these different a- aspects uh, of the clinical product are obviously very attractive. And then the other side on uh, research and drug discovery side, we would again launch products that can be bought and that other companies can, can use for their drug discovery purposes. We entertain the, the possibility of creating partnerships. So if, if you want to have some sort of more complex models, edits or so, then yes, that's obviously something that we, we're very happy to support. And have you have you guys had any pushback? Because I know stem cells, especially human stem cells, it's a very, very controversial area. So where do these stem cells come from? And has there been any issue with that? Now, the good news is that I think those times are past. And why, why is that the case? Because the initial source of stem cells were embryos. And that is, you know, yes, that is a contentious source. But what uh, Shinya Yamanaka was able to do um, in 2006-7, and which, which essentially earned him the Nobel Prize, was to give us a different tool 
how we get to those stem cells. And now all we need, you know, is a sample of blood or a little bit of skin or even just a hair follicle. And we can turn those back into stem cells that behave more or less like the embryonic stem cell type. And that's unlocked two things. The ethical constraints are gone because we no longer have to go there. And we're now able to produce stem cells from every individual, so highly personalized. And of course, that is a huge thing. That's um, been a a massive step forward. Well, that just leads to a question I didn't know I had. But when you talk about personalized stem cells, how does that work when you're also talking about kind of scaling this up and, you know, pumping out whatever cell therapies for, you know, ailment X, Y, or Z? Mm-hmm. How does the personalization aspect impinge there? Because obviously, if it's, I don't know if you talk about this idea of personalized medicine, but if you're also, we just need to, you know, we found the cell therapy, it works. Why does it, or how does it work with kind of my personal stem cell or information? Well, there's two aspects to, to personalization, I would say. One of them is getting exactly the right function for the indication or for the disease indication that you have. At the moment, we have very blunt tools, uh, and we take you know those to sort of try and make a difference in, in in very complex conditions. Now, if we have precisely engineered cells with precise functions that we can fine tune to make a difference, then that's one way of personalizing them. And the scale up of that is, of course, at this point in time, the thinking goes off the shelf products. So that would be stem cells that we can instruct to become the cell types that we want. And we can then use either matching paradigms like organ transplants, where we know how we can sort of match transplants, or in the future, um, perhaps also use what's called a universal cell, a cell that is able to overcome the immune rejection. So that's one paradigm. But then the other side of that is that our technologies are getting more and more advanced. So it's taken months to create a stem cell using this new Yamanaka approach a decade ago. And now we're pushing this into weeks. Um, and what that means is that, you know, there's an alternative that, that, is, that is happening right now, where, which in, you know, within a decade or so could actually personalize the actual cell that we use, the starting cell, for a therapy as well. So I think the jury is going to be out and there might be a, you know one case we want to have something that's off the shelf and another case there's something that's sort of personalized but in all cases the function will be very very tailored to what you want to treat. Yeah, it's in either case it'll be much better than the kind of sledgehammer to crack a nut approach which we have now cuz we just don't have our medicines aren't that targeted. Uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Right. Um, I have a, f- a weird question. Uh, how old are you? So, um, <laughs> so I'm. I, I just turned fifty. Oh, congratulations! <laughs> uh, um, so you're fifty, and it is twenty twenty one. Fast forward twenty years, and presuming this plays out kind of as you hope or as you expect. Do we get into this new realm of, well, you know, we can kind of effectively grow new organs. Um, we can kind of become like cars where it's like, 
you know, when your liver breaks down, you just grow a new one and swap it out and you're good to go. Uh, in terms of like, you know, longevity and lifespan, how do you see that playing out? Do you think you're going to live to 100 or 120? Well, I think um, realistically what, I'm, um, what, what I expect is that this is the, the direction of travel will be to take more and more engineering approaches. To biology. Or, to biology. And what we've seen in other fields is once you start doing this, things start to rapidly accelerate. So I'm not going to lean out and say that what you are <laughs> sort of painting as a picture will be yeah. ready in 10, 20 years. But I certainly would see that that's the direction of travel. And I would certainly say that the possibilities, the, the scientific tools, um, the control systems, but also our insight, the data systems to understand biology have put us in a position where this is going to be triggered. So th this development, I, I think, is on, on, on its way. Right. Um, and then just lastly, as for BitBio, the company, how many people are you guys now? You founded it five years ago? So we started off as a project in 2017, got the first uh, money uh, in our series seed in, in 19. Uh, and, and we are now 110, 115 staff. Oh, wow. Um, most of us are, you know, scientists. Uh, we have business teams and now more and more, you know, manufacturing development, process engineers, and a clinical team that's growing. Where's the manufacturing done? Um, so we have built our own manufacturing unit in Cambridge, and we already can produce scale, so cells at scale. What's now important, of course, is to create, um, to translate this for therapeutic use into GMP settings, and we're sort of well on the way there. And, to, you know, there's all sorts of other regulatory frameworks that uh, the, the company has to fulfill. So how much money have you guys raised? So, so far, um, we've raised uh, uh, approximately 50 million. Five zero or one five? Five zero, yes, five zero. Right, right, right. And uh, obviously, this is a capital-intensive business, so... Um, we are going to add to that. Yeah. It just sounds so kind of fantastical. Was it hard to raise money or was it very easy to raise money when you sit down with kind of venture capitalists and be like, okay, this is what, <laughs> this is our kind of our roadmap and this is what we think is going to happen in the world and we're going to play a central part. Were people like, yeah, here, take my money or were you laughed out of the room or both? So when you look back, you think it was very easy and we went extremely fast. Um, and, and not only that, we're an outliner, you know, we are in Cambridge, UK, and we were sort of recognized by the leading VCs in Silicon Valley. So I'm talking about Rick Klausner, who's done multiple cell therapy companies, has been involved in the Gates Foundation uh, and was the national, the, the, the director of the National Institute of Health. And, and Bob Nelson, who's the founder of Arch Ventures, and Jim Tannenbaum, who was Foresight Capital. So these are incredible sort of experienced uh, and highly networked VCs. At this point in time, we're obviously transitioning into a sort of more growth phase. And so the conversations are changing. But the good thing is that we have already the recognition of the network. We've got the validation, the commercial validation, and also the preclinical proof points to show that what we're actually proposing has a very, very good uh, chance to become true within a, a very reasonable period of time. 
Right. And then lastly, um, where where are you from? Where'd you grow up? So I've been born in Canada, but my accent uh, is not from Calgary. Um, my parents are, <laughs> my parents are Austrian, uh, and so they dragged me back to Austria and, and Germany, and that's what, where I started to, to learn language. And now I'm stuck with this. Uh, <laughs> I'm stuck with the same. It's actually it's funny because my parents come from the same little town in Austria, uh, like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, so, oh really? Yeah. Our, the governor out here. <laughs> exactly. So I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's great. Well, look, I really appreciate you being so um, generous with your time. It's uh, obviously deeply fascinating, and I could spend another hour firing more questions at you. But I will leave you to uh, to your evening. Uh, although it still looks quite nice and bright out there, I do miss the long British days. But um, Thank you very much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Th thank you, Danny. Um, highly appreciate it as well. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Mark for taking us on that tour uh, of, you know, all the way down to the cellular, cellular level. Cellular. It's a hard word to say. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Like I said, I think we'll be bringing on a couple other folks kind of in and around this world, you know, the synthetic biology lab-grown meat world over this next uh, month or two because I'm just fascinated by it. And I think, obviously, again, the potential implications are vast if any of this stuff really starts to deliver. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your ratings and reviews. The occasional tip via the iCast creator uh, link, that's always awesome to get. And that's it. You can find me online on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And if you want to read more about synthetic biology, I would urge you to buy the paper this weekend or subscribe online, whatever. Whatever strikes your fancy. That's it. Have a fabulous weekend. We will talk to you next week. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.